God, I pray that as we gather tonight, Lord, that we would remember your faithfulness towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Lord, help us tonight as we partake, not just of opening up your word, but as well as partaking of the Lord's Supper, that we would be reminded of the sacrifice of your son Jesus, his blood shed for us and his body broken for us, and that we would do these things in remembrance of him and the fact that one day he will soon call us home. Help us to long and look forward to that day. And until that day, heed to what the scripture says as we're about to read tonight. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time and we give it over to you now in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 if you have your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4. Tonight's title would be Unity at the Table. As we are coming to the Lord's Table tonight to partake of what some would call communion, some call it Lord's Supper. Um, nevertheless, what we come to is tonight, as been kind of preparing and praying about tonight's service, is the, the thought kept coming back, and this has been a, a passage that's been kind of in my mind for a little while now, but I believe that tonight is, is, um, is the right time. I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter number 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. This passage begins here in Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul. Of course, the first three, much like what Paul does in his letters, as he opens up about half the book or so, or half the letter, with this big treatise of, here's the doctrine, here's what you've got to know, and then gets into the, here's how you walk that out. And literally, throughout the book of Ephesians, we find several times, walk, walk, walk. It is about our walk our spiritual walk we are literally in some ways on a spiritual journey we're not on a our own sort of journey where we're going to where we wherever we please or wherever we want to go but rather if we're in christ our journey has one destination that is to see our savior face to face we will meet eternity and it will be here sooner rather than later and so we are called though on this journey to walk or to run this race as the bible often alludes to as well but nevertheless as we look here it's dealing with our manner of life the way in which we live and i believe this to be especially appropriate as we come tonight to the lord's supper when we think about the lord's supper it is a representation and a reminder of what christ has done for us and it is a reminder as well that as he lived a perfect and sinless life that you and i cannot now, when we partake of this elements here in just a few minutes, it's not so that way we would be saved, but rather because we are saved and we are identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we are cleansed by His blood and that the promise of hope that He is coming again for His own. So when the Apostle Paul begins this passage here and he opens up, he says, I beseech you. He's urging, exhorting. He's calling these dear believers the same as he is tonight to you and I, he says that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Now, when we often read the word vocation in the English, we think of a specific job, right? A, a vocational job that you might do. But the, the idea remains the same of all-encompassing of our whole life. When the moment that we are born again, we now have a new job to do, don't we? We now have a new calling upon our life. There is no believer who does not have 
the same calling, which is to abide in Christ, to walk in Christ, and to tell others about Christ, to live for Christ, uh, to live as Christ. Uh, everything in our life now becomes Christ-focused, Christ-centered, Christ-honoring, uh, Christ-magnifying. Everything becomes about Jesus. It is now by Him, through Him, and to Him, as we've dealt with this morning. And so to walk worthy of this means that we understand what that walk is to look like. It means that we understand how He walked. It means that we are gathered here to live our lives worthy of what we've been called to. Every believer, not just a pastor or a missionary or a deacon or that sort of thing, they're not the only ones with a high calling. Every believer has a high calling, a divine purpose for which they are called. And as we're about to see, it, it, it shows itself the way in which we walk worthy is going to be founded in three simple things. Humility, love, and unity. Humility, love, and unity. First of all, there it is found in the next verse. How are we to walk worthy with humility? This goes against the very nature of the day and age of which Paul is writing. As he's writing to a Greco-Roman culture, humility was not a thing, right? I mean, literally, like you and I and, and our southern culture have a, have a fast food or a chicken restaurant or a church on every side, you know, every other block. For them, they've got statues to everything, right? And they've got idolatry everywhere, and they've got paintings of themselves and statues of themselves, and everything is about self-image and pride and to be the smartest, the best, the most athletic, the biggest and best warrior, the, everything, right? And then every building has to be the biggest and the best. Every town has its own little thing that it's known for, right? It has to have everything, right? Pride is, is everywhere. Idolatry is everywhere. But for the Christian, it's opposite. We're called to humility. Humility, even though we are saved, is still not an easy thing to, to accomplish or to walk up. As a matter of fact, it would be the ones of us who would, we would probably say about someone in this room, you know, they're a very humble person. And that person would probably, if they truly are humble, say, I'm the most prideful person I know. Right? right? And so, some would say, you know, on the other side, I'm the most humble person I know that's nothing but pride isn't it and we know others who maybe not say those words but certainly would act like it but if we're real honest with ourselves we often are the ones who are full of pride self-centered self-willed self-righteous self-pleasing and self-glorifying self-everything and we live in a self-centered world everything is about self self-image self-love and now here what he brings us and calls us to do is that if we're going to walk worthy of the Lord, and I would say tonight, if we're going to walk worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper and understanding the depth of it, it's going to begin with humility. He begins by saying with all lowliness and meekness. Lowliness and meekness are often found together. They are two peas in a pod. The idea is one of of a total emptying of oneself, one that is gentle not harsh, one who is humble in all that they do, putting others first. Uh, this is what we are called to do. Uh, over in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each, other, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What we see is to be lowly and to be meek certainly resembles who the Lord Jesus was. Now, there were some times that I love that Jesus was not seeming to be so meek and mild where he comes into the temple and cleans house and or, or the way he preaches is often in your face. And the truth is there, especially to the different audiences that he would preach to through the religious crowd. But there is a lowliness and a meekness about Christ. The King of Kings, God in the flesh who comes to humble man who cannot get to him and he comes to them to his own people and would be despised and rejected, would be ridiculed and mocked and, and would be hated. And here you and I are called to live a life very much the same. It should be a humbling thing to come to the Lord's table. When we see a little cracker or piece, you know, a little bit of juice as we often see it in our, our context, the way that we do it, we don't often come very humble. We come going, let's just get this over with. Rather, we should come humbly understanding that while this is not the literal body nor the literal blood of Christ, this is a figure, representation, that he did literally have his body broken and his blood flow for us to pay the price for our sins. And is there anything more humbling than that? Is there anything more humbling knowing that the God of the universe had to come and die in our place? That certainly should bring about some lowliness and meekness towards our relationship with God, and as well as our relationship with one with another. We often don't approach God with lowliness and meekness, and we especially don't approach each other with lowliness and meekness. We were called to serve one another, to love one another, to forbear one another, as he's about to show. He says, with long-suffering. The word long-suffering I love, it is that of patience. Not just of, you know, waiting around, but patiently waiting, enduring with with a love, with a, I'm patiently doing this because of how I feel towards you. It is the way in which we're told that God is long-suffering toward us. If anyone should be a patient people, it should be God's people. And yet we're often the most impatient of people. We want things now. We want it our way. We want it, we're the ones that stare at the microwave while the popcorn is going, after pressing the popcorn button going, why isn't it ready? Why isn't it popping? How, how, how can this not be over? It's been a whole 30 seconds, right? We're a, we're a want it now type of people. Well, if we think about this, is there anyone more long-suffering than God? I don't know when you got saved, right? Many of us don't get saved the first time we hear the gospel, do we? Very rare does that take place, that you've heard the gospel one time and that's the moment of your salvation. Many times it takes time after time week after week, sometimes year after year of hearing the gospel before someone will be saved. It, it often takes even decades for some. There are testimonies of some who have been saved uh, in their 80s and 90s on their deathbeds. There have been those who have been saved and wasted years of their youth and their, the best part of their life in, in riotous living, much like the, the prodigal son, to come back and to be saved after finally hearing and after rejecting and rejecting and rejecting, finally accepting the gospel. There is something beautiful about the fact that God is long-suffering toward us, but there should also be the picture that takes place in the church of God and with one another, that we are long-suffering with one another. I believe that we understand that God is patient with us, but unfortunately we don't return the favor to each other. We are very quick to speak, 
and slow to listen. We are very quick to wrath and slow to forgive. We are so full of going, nope, I've had my line. It's drawn. You've gone too far. You did me shame, right? Fooled me once, fooled me twice. Now we're done. Boy, if God gave us two shots like we give one another, most of us wouldn't even be here today, would we? But praise the Lord that He's long-suffering. Therefore, if we're to walk worthy of what He's called us to, we too should be patient one with another, especially as we come to this table knowing as we partake of these things, how long-suffering God was to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us, the ungodly. And then he says this, to walk worthy means humility and it means love. Forbearing one another in love. To forbear one another, it is this a giving of oneself that is a true love, a not a self-pleasing love or self-willed love, but a self-sacrificial love. Love and true love that is described here is one that helps out and loves regardless of if it is reciprocated back or regardless of if they get anything in return. So often in church, what we do is we love one another as long as it's going to get us something back. Or we do the same even with the Lord. Well, I'll give God an extra 10 this week because, you know, he'll probably bless me extra for it. And Well, there might be some truth that certainly God blesses givers, but he blesses a cheerful giver, not one who's looking to see what he can get out and rig the system. You see, we look at this and understand that if we're bearing one another in love, it is the idea of loving someone even though they are unlovable at times, even though they might not love you back like they should. And this is a picture of marriage as the church is this is a picture of how the Lord looks at us and loves us even though for so long in our life we did not love Him back. And even a little step further, even after we are saved, He still lavishes His love upon us and we still don't love Him like we should. I would love to say as a pastor of a church who has been preaching about 10 years now and has degrees in Bible and all this stuff and reads daily, that I love the Lord like I should. But I, I can't say that. And as we come to the Lord's table tonight, it certainly is a reminder that this is a picture of the love of God. That as we're about to partake of these things in just a few short moments, that we're reminded what speaks of love greater than the sacrifice of God's own Son for us on our behalf. And it as well calls us that if God would certainly love us while we were rebels in heart, against him, his own enemies, enemies of the cross, that those who wrong us, those who are against us, that our enemies, those who despise us or wrongfully use us or persecute us, that we should love them just as much as Christ loved us. That's a tough one. Not an easy one. But yet it is still something that we are called to do. The third thing that we're called, and this is what we'll focus on, is unity. Endeavoring. I would say that it is an endeavor, isn't it? To keep the unity. Notice this, endeavoring to keep the unity. He does not say endeavoring to make unity. He does not say endeavoring to create unity. He does not say endeavoring to, you know, try to try real hard to find some common ground, at least with a few folks. No, he says endeavoring to keep the unity that is already there. That should already be there because if, 
there are two people who are both saved, there should be a natural unity. There is sayings about family, that, you know, blood is thicker than water, is that it, right? Someone help me out, you know, blood's thicker than water, right? Or, or there's some who would say that, uh, you know, eh, it's only but so, you know, your family's family, but there's different relationships. And I would say that when we look at the church, often the ones who you're closest with aren't necessarily blood family, but are the family that are blood family in Christ's blood. The ones who are saved and you are saved because there's a depth there. You both are new creations in Christ Jesus. You both have a newness of life, a walk with Him, and you might not have anything else in common with your family other than the fact that you have the same genetic makeup, the same diseases or the same family or the same casserole recipes. But when it comes to spiritual matters, when we have the blood of Christ that has covered us from all sins, that covers a whole multitude of sins, doesn't it? It covers and brings about a closeness and unity that can't be broken. Why? Because, to be honest, the sad truth is that many of us will leave this world and go on to eternity and will never see some of our blood relatives ever again. But yet every person who has been saved and sealed by the blood of the Lamb we will see. Yet they are the ones we're often most willing to fight. Often the ones we're more willing to go to war with. Often the ones we're not the willing to forgive. The ones we're quick to judge or quick to slander. We'll defend our family who doesn't know the Lord. And we'll fight the ones who do. It's quite the shame. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there should certainly be a peacefulness as we come to the Lord's table and as we gather as God's church, as God's people. There's going to be some things here now that he gives as you're going to see the pattern here. One blank, one blank, one blank. Of all these things that bring about unity that show us what it is, that we have unity in. This is in some ways a, a creedal confession of the early church, of how they would understand this is who we are, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it. He begins in verse number four. There is one body. One body. The one body is the body of Christ. It is the church. The church does not mean our local church. It certainly does on the spreading out of things, but it's the idea that you are part of the same church as uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. You're part of the same church as those who have never spoken English or held on to these hymn books, but they Know and trust Jesus alone for salvation. You're part of the same family as mighty men and women who have literally lost their lives for the church of God and for the gospel to be proclaimed. We're part of a good family. We're part of a big body. And this means as a body, as the rest of the scripture teaches, that we each have our own job to do. As we'll go on later on in this chapter, he'll deal specifically with that. That for some, apostles and prophets and this and evangelists and some, pastors and teachers, perfecting for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It is this idea that if you are a part of this body, you have a part to play. You might be an eye, you might be an ear, you might be a tooth. Might be a, a pinky toe. But you're a part of the same body. 
You're part of the body of Christ. Therefore, we're to treat it right. If our body is a temple, certainly how should we feel about the the global church and even to another degree, the local church? It should matter to us. The church of God should absolutely matter. Why? Because it mattered to Jesus enough to die for it. It matters enough to Jesus that he's going to come back for it. And we're not just the body of Christ, but we're also the bride of Christ. It's this idea that we are one body. Your right hand should not hate your left foot because it does different things. It's a part of the same body. Accomplishing, if it works and this works as it's supposed to, it makes up the whole body and makes it go and function. We've got to remember that, especially in the local church. We get a better picture and understanding of the, the way the church works when we look at our mission board. We go, oh man, look how great God works throughout all the world. And then we turn around and we see people come in and out or sit and, and we go about our local church life and we get so upset about the, these things. But we need the church. And the church needs us. We're part of this one body. And then he says, and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled the apostles and filled Peter as he preached on the day of Pentecost, the same Holy Spirit that you and I have, the same third person of the Trinity who indwells and seals every believer, the same Holy Spirit who has drawn everyone who has ever been saved unto salvation, who has convicted of sin, who has drawn them, who has uh, regenerated them and who has sealed them under the day of redemption and who has uh, uh, kept them and, and sanctified them through His continual work in our hearts and lives. And because we have that same Holy Spirit, this means another thing, that we are not someone else's Holy Spirit. Us Baptists are very good at trying to play Holy Spirit, but we can never be the Holy Spirit because we're not God. Two, we got the Holy Spirit inside of us for a reason to sanctify us because if I can't be fully sanctified on my own, Heaven help me trying to sanctify somebody else. So if we see that we're part of one body and we have the same Holy Spirit, then that means if they truly are saved and the Holy Spirit's got to take care of that person's heart, I can't do it. Even as the pastor, I look and I go, all I can do is give you this and pray for you and be there for you, you know, in any way possible. But then the day, if you are truly saved, and it's going to be a work of the Spirit in you as you submit to His call and to his will and to his word and his leading but if there is no submission if there's no obedience to the spirit then there very well may not be the same holy spirit that we have third he says even as you're called in one hope of your calling this kind of piggybacks on to the one spirit if we are part of the body of christ if we are apart by having the same holy spirit this means we're saved and if we're truly saved we have one hope and it is not a hope that we're saved, but it is the knowledge and assurance of eternal security. That that same Holy Spirit has saved us and sealed us unto the day of redemption in the body of Christ. That that is our position. We are in Christ and He is in us and there is no taking us out. There is no taking Him out. It's there. It's who we are now positionally. When the Lord looks down, when the Father looks and sees it, He may as well be looking at His Son. He sees His righteousness clothed and placed upon our account. His blood that has covered our sins and everything else that we used to be, it's gone. It's done away with. Therefore, we do have one hope. You are going to go to the same heaven that a saved soul in this church that you can't stand is going to go to. (laughs) 
It's just the truth. We may as well smile about it because we know that there are so many people. And, and by the way, right now, someone has come to your mind already. But you've probably came to someone else's mind too. Now, we should be able to laugh a little bit about it because if we really think about it, the reason why we laugh is because we realize how trivial it actually is. We realize that we make mountains out of molehills. Not even mole. We make them out of little, I mean, lint roll. I mean, a little, little piece of dirt. I mean, that's it. And we take a grain of sand and we go, oh, this is the biggest mountain I've ever seen in my life. And because we put it right here, one hope. The great thing and the great truth that I love is when someone comes to me and has a disagreement about something in the Bible or, or a difference of opinion about how something should be done. Is I say, hey, thank you for sharing. And I appreciate you being honest. But guess what? I can't wait till one day, if you're saved and I'm saved, and we're going to be in heaven, and it won't matter who was right, who was wrong. It won't matter if you were right on this one and I was wrong on that one or vice versa. It won't matter even how well we got along on this earth because we're going to get along there. Working together perfectly. Perhaps one of the other forgotten things about heaven is the great truth is that you and I will perfectly be united together for the first time because right now we still have flesh that gets in the way, don't we? Fourth, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus cannot just be Savior. He is Lord and Savior. He must be Lord of our lives, especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who would say that they are walking worthy. We must be submitting to Him as our Lord. To be Lord means that He's in authority and control, that He is King and that we are just paupers and beggars who are obedient to His will and to His Word. There's one Lord. That means if you keep Jesus at the center of your life and walk, and I keep Jesus as the center of my life and walk, then we'll both be walking worthy, won't we? We'll both be walking the same direction. But what happens is we get distracted or we put this ahead where it shouldn't be, even the top five of discussions. We must keep the main things, the main things, and the main thing is the main one, and that's Jesus, our Lord. He says, next one. One faith. It is the same gospel, the same grace, the same mercy, the same amount of blood that it took to save the most wretched vial of sinners as it did the, the one who's been in church all their life. It is the same message, the same gospel of hope, of peace that brings us all together in unity. That we do have the same faith. That The great thing is that for the believer in China or the believer in Africa or the believer who, who's never looked or talked or said the, or, or lived how you and I have in our context, we've got the same faith. The same faith in the same Jesus. And we must be sure that that faith is sincere and that faith is real and that faith is not just in our own works, but rather that it is not in our works, but rather it is solely in the finished work of Christ to have one faith. Next, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is twofold. One baptism here could literally mean the beginning of your spiritual life, which is your spirit baptism, where in which the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and resides and takes up residence in you, and he will never leave you, never forsake you, and he's in you, you're in him. He's going to walk with you until you are dead or until the Lord calls us out of here. 
The second fold is the idea of our water baptism, where we are identified with Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. That's why we start up and then we go down and we come back up. Raised to newness of life is the idea. It's showing a total commitment, a total committal to, to Christ. That we are all baptized of the same Holy Spirit and that we are all called to be baptized in a picture of the gospel, in a picture of what the Lord has done for us, and in a picture that baptism does not just identify us with Jesus, but it identifies us with each other. And, not, and I would even say this, and, and, and don't, don't uh, run me out of here, but even to our saved friends who are saved and even another denomination that we might not even like, but they truly are born again and they might have sprinkled and tinkled and they weren't dunked like we were. Guess what? One day we'll figure all that out and they'll understand that we were right. <laughs> but the great truth is this, that they're baptized with the same Holy Spirit. And they identify with Christ and with the rest of the body the same way that we do. We must be humble enough, as he had just addressed in verse number 2, in order to understand these things. Unless we first have humility, we won't have love, and we can't have unity, can we? There is no unity if there is no humility and love for one another. And lastly, he says, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. All here is not a universal fatherhood of God, but rather all of those who are saved as he's writing to. Who is he writing to here? The whole world? No, he's writing to the, the saved people in Ephesus. Now, this is the idea that he is the father of all those who trust in him, all those who are in him. And he is above all of those, and he is through all those and in all of those. It is this same God, the same body that brings us about this unity that brings us to the place where as we're about to approach the Lord's Supper that we realize that we desperately need these three things as we approach tonight and as well as we move forward in our church. As we move forward in trying to grow and reach the lost and be discipled and make disciples and, and, and start things back up again and try to get things back to quote-unquote normal, if you will. We've got to understand that if we want anything, and all of us would say certainly with our whole heart, we want unity. And the sad truth is that most Baptist churches have rarely and scarcely seen unity amongst the body. And I believe that the real reason that we don't see unity is because we don't have personal humility and a personal love, not just for God, but for each other. And if we were to understand this little creed, if you will, that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, certainly would humble us, certainly would cause us to love one another, and certainly would prepare us to come better prepared for the Lord's table. And so tonight, as we're about to transition over, I'm going to pray in just a moment to close out this portion, prepare our hearts for the passing of the elements. I want us to search our hearts tonight. I want us to search our hearts and to see if we have the humility that it takes to bring about unity. I want us to search our hearts and to see if we have the humility that brings about a true love for God and for his people, regardless of how they act and if they deserve it or not, or how many times they've wronged us or not. That we would have true humility and true love so that we would experience true unity and not just a false unity, which is 
often seen on Sunday mornings where we come in the same back door, right? If we had a, a, a few verses like this today that we would write, it would be one parking lot, one back door, one pastor, one big problem, and it ain't me, I'd be in parentheses, one sanctuary, one all these things. It's this, the idea that we come in on Sunday mornings and we come as we should for the same purpose. However, we often come scatterbrained and scatterhearted with different hearts and motives just to come and play dress up for church. Now that should certainly not be the case as we come to Lord's table. It is certainly as much serious as a Sunday morning, if not even more so to the degree that we are gathering to specifically take time tonight to remember and reflect on Christ's sacrifice for us and to look forward to the fact that he's coming again. We should be able to do so in unity, shouldn't we? But before we can ever be united at this table, we have got to have a true humility and love in our own heart. Tonight, let us pray. And I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. In just a moment, we'll pass these things out as the piano plays. May the Lord search our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as we have studied and opened up this passage of Scripture, I pray, God, that you would guide us. Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to partake of this. Lord, to understand the depth of it. To understand the fact that we come before you all in desperate need of your presence and your power in our life. That as we partake of this time, that we would reflect and remember what you have done for us because of our sin, and even despite our sin, to forgive us of our sin. And Lord, that one day you call and declare that you will get rid of all of these issues and disunity in our hearts and in our churches. And Lord, one day we'll be united together when you come back for us. We're with you face to face. So God, I pray that now you would search our hearts. Help us to take this humbly and lovingly and united together in one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. May we worship you now in Christ's name. Amen.